0: Hi, my name is Teddy uh, and I'm a software engineer turned entrepreneur, so I'm running a little software consulting firm, uh, helping non-technical co-founders mainly, is what we do, Uh, and a bunch of other little businesses aside, which we can talk about later maybe in the podcast.
1: This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Hey folks, Garrett here. In this episode, we introduce Teddy Piowski entrepreneur, engineer, and guru at bridging the technical, non-technical divide. He's the founder of Crack Your Screen, an app with over 20 million downloads, the software studio G6, a code academy, an engineer placement and recruiting platform, and a game-changing no-code technology called Enzyme. Teddy's entrepreneurial journey is like a movie in the making, from selling flowers in rural Macedonia to building innovative technologies the world over. Why? because is one of those unique breeds that thinks like an entrepreneur, but has the technical chops to build almost anything. So for you folks who want to dive into the mind of an engineer who knows the complexities of working with non-technical founders, this episode is for you. Hope you enjoy it. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the Best and Most Awesome Founder Podcast, a show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Well, Teddy Pajoski, welcome.
0: Yeah, happy to be here, Garrett.
1: Uh, Teddy, thanks for for being on the show. I'm actually really excited to have you. As you know, a a topic that is near and dear to my heart is helping founders, particularly founders without uh, technical skill sets, build technology companies. Um, I myself have been one of those people and learned the hard way um, what not to do in many cases, but um, went through a a collection of experiences where... um, turned over a lot of staff, I probably made dozens more angry, uh, threw away a half a million dollars worth of technology, which was one heck of a conversation to have with my investors, and uh, learned all of my mistakes uh, through the failing-by-doing process. So uh, this is a topic that's really interesting to me, and as we're at a business school here at VEHAU, that has a lot of great business minds, but not a lot of technical capacities. I thought this would be a really great conversation for them to hear a little bit about the engineering side and some of the challenges that they might have along the way.
0: Absolutely, yeah, thanks for having me. I think I can provide a lot of insights based on what we did in the past, because actually that's what we do. We, we help uh, co-founders with non-technical background, uh, overcoming those challenges that we, that we basically see every day. And, uh, as much as it's easy for us to understand or build stuff, uh, it's super hard for them to tell us what they expect or what, what they want to do. So I think we've seen a lot in the past, uh, I don't know, 10 years maybe, uh, working with with non-technical people.
1: Awesome. Well, before we get to that, I think it'll be nice to learn a little bit about you and what it is that you do. Um, as we've known each other now for five years, I believe. I guess, yeah. Yeah. Um, I know a little bit of this story already, so I can kind of preface <laughs> it a bit, but um, because I think that was the first conversation you and I ever had. So maybe you can start by uh, sharing a little bit of your entrepreneurial journey and kind of how you got started as uh, both an engineer and an entrepreneur and kind of tell us how you got from day one to where you are today.
0: Uh, Well, I don't know what comes first, whether it's the engineering part or the entrepreneurship part. Uh, I've been involved with like computer science engineering programming from really like super early age, about 12, 13 years uh, old when I started basically programming but prior to that I did a little bit of entrepreneurship even I wasn't really aware that that's how, how we call that thing uh, but I, my parents couldn't afford to buy me a computer so I would spend uh, days in internet cafes back then uh, and kind of fixing computers around and helping other people you know uh, chatting setting, set, setting their, their pieces up uh, and I figured that I need computer I, I, lo- I love that Uh, but they, they couldn't afford to buy me one. So I started figuring out ways to how I can make more money. Uh, lucky thing is probably that my parents are both uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, they've been running their, their businesses for like the past 30 years. So I kind of learned a bit from, from both of them. And I started selling flowers when I was around 11, 12 years old. Uh, and with the money I got from like the, the, the flowers I, uh, I, I made enough so I can buy myself a computer. Basically, that's how. I mean, that was one of my happiest days when I was really young. Uh, and everything started uh, back then. Uh, what I what I used to do, I would uh, I would go to these popular uh, IRC channels, and I would basically talk to people and uh, engage in communities about programming and uh, basically various topics, but programming was the one thing that uh, was really interesting to me. And then the, the city, I'm coming from a little town in, in North Macedonia, It's uh, uh, there are not that many people and there are not that many people that you can talk to about programming. So I needed to, you know, spend time, again, in internet cafes and download free books or just Google search, actually it wasn't Google back then, maybe Yahoo or something like that. Uh, And yeah, I I started getting into that uh, even more. Uh, Now, fast forward to uh, that was my my high school time. And then uh, fast forward to my university days is where I really, really got into into programming and trying to see the big picture and what's the power of programming and what I can do basically with using those tools and programming languages. Uh, I kind of created a little network of people together with uh, actually four four other people uh, who are my partners basically. Today uh, we started doing little websites. Uh, after that, mobile apps, and that's uh, that became what now G6 is basically. The company name is, is G6, and uh, we're the four, four founders. And, um, and there's a lot in between, but that's basically my journey. Like a little bit more about the beginning and then slowly moving to what we are and where we stand today. It's uh
1: it's not uncommon when I talk to the founders that many of them had entrepreneurial parents as well. Somehow the the lessons or the the DNA somehow I don't know if it gets passed down genetically as much, or that there's just a different risk risk profile that's learned of children from entrepreneurs. Um, maybe some of them are turned off by the struggle that comes along with it, and others are turned on by the the freedom or or the flexibility. You kind of mentioned that. Um, you know your main driver for kind of engaging in entrepreneurial activities was um, that you wanted to buy a computer and you wanted to get into mm-hmm. computer science um, Would you say at that time you knew that you wanted to be an entrepreneur for various reasons? Or were you just focused on this goal of getting this new tool that you could explore?
0: I, I don't think I was aware that I want to become something. Uh, I mean, far away from entrepreneur or or even programmer. I, I didn't know how things work. I just I just knew that that's uh, that was the thing back then that got me excited and that I can be I can feel powerful by just you know being able to connect uh, to people outside my town. I kind of felt the 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 power there. Uh, so. Yeah, I, I don't know if I was aware. Actually, there's there's this uh, this story. My mom is also uh, teaching business in high school, and then uh, I don't know. I don't remember how old I was back then. But she asked me, uh, like, not what do you want to be when you grow up. It was rather, uh, do you want to be an entrepreneur? And that was the first time I, I hear about about that word. And uh, I was like. I don't know what that is. If you can, you know, tell me, explain what, what it means to be an entrepreneur. But she was explaining, uh, she, ex- she explained to me, <clears throat> uh, basically by the book, what the book says, an entrepreneur is someone who's taking risks and then the reward is big, uh, but you need to be in all, you have to, to do all those, uh, all these roles, different roles, so you can be perceived as entrepreneur. And it sounded to me like a crazy idea and something that I would i wouldn't want to do in in the future it was like probably not that's that's not for me i i I'll, i'm going to be a programmer probably yeah. so you know i wasn't really aware
1: right <laughs> cool So you said, you know, you got a computer that got you really deep into the interest on the topic. You went to university where you ended up meeting your your eventual co-founders of G6, um, your software okay. consulting firm. Can you talk a little bit about you know, how that business came to be and what some of the catalysts were that you went that took you from being a student to actually running a, a real revenue generating business? I mean it's... Uh, where, where do I start?
0: Uh, so, back then, we were just excited by building things. So, we we were, like, a bunch of young kids with uh, some, some computer skills, and we were, oh, there's this tool that's missing. It, it would be nice if we have this tool, you know, and we would just talk about ideas, and we would just start and, and, and build them, actually. Uh, and that was it. There wasn't any, like... Uh, money involved in, in the formula. We, we we weren't looking for that. We were looking. I mean, we were just passionate. If someone if someone was like, "Hey guys, this is good job that you that you did," we were like super excited about that. Uh, and and that's what we've been doing for like the first two years. We built little website here for the region where we post news or where we gonna. Uh, I don't know. We we started uh, like URL shortening shortening. Tool, which you know, th- th- at that time there are a bunch of URL shorten- shortening tools, uh, but we felt like, oh, we can do this in like a couple days. Like, let's try. it, Let's do like a Macedonian URL shortening tool and those kind of things. You know, we were basically like working overnight, hacking stuff, and
1: that was the, the main drive. Yeah. Cool, cool. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna prime this conversation a little bit because I know a story that I really want you to tell. <laughs> okay. Um, um, you guys built a mo- a mobile app that uh, had a, a pretty strong degree of success and led to some outcomes if I understand correctly would you mind sharing that story
0: yeah I mean uh, when at uh, the beginning we were doing a bunch of you know websites and we were looking for new exciting technologies and around 2009 that's when the mobile thing started really and we were again exploring uh excited about what we can do on mobile, although the devices weren't powerful back then. So we started creating little apps for, uh, I don't know, basically games or or prank apps, things like that. And because the market wasn't really saturated at that time, we could get easily to like 10,000 downloads. And then once you have that number, it's a quite big number, 10,000 downloads. So you're getting more excited and it's pushing you more to do more. I don't know exactly when, but uh, we came up with this idea of uh, basically having your phone and then put like a fake cracked screen on top of all the application. Uh, that became Crack Your Screen. And that's really one of like our biggest uh, success stories. And I think it's still one of the most downloaded in from this region, basically. Uh, to date, we, I mean, it was installed on over 20 million phones. Uh, yeah, I mean it was it was crazy back then. We didn't know how, how this uh, market works basically because you submit the app, there are downloads coming from everywhere and you don't know what to do with them. We learned how to monetize it by putting little ads in there but that wasn't really uh, it wasn't really planned or it wasn't really uh, with like having like a goal with that. It was just pure fun but it ended up being good success for us. Then we applied to a challenge organized by Samsung uh, back in 2011-12, uh, and we actually won the first place there. And that was really massive. Uh, we got some cash from them as well, and that helped us, uh, or that actually put us in a situation where we need to think what we're gonna do next but this time we need to plan plan things ahead because we have this money now we have this popularity we have these users uh we we need to do uh we need to think what we're going to do uh so i think that uh, that was probably the primary the, the primary drive of like starting the company actually uh and then we were recognized by the community and many, many people who read the story about Samsung can crack your screen approached us. They were asking for like building mobile apps for them, uh, helping them with whatever software they, they had because that's like the perception. If you are a software engineer, you know how to fix everything. Uh, and, yeah, that's how we got our first clients. Uh,
1: yeah. Wow. I mean, 20 million downloads, kind of mm-hmm. doing it accidentally. That's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, what's also interesting about it is, you know, you were doing this as a hacker or a computer programmer, you weren't building that, really thinking about that it would become some kind of business or even have the, the widespread success that it had. Was there a, a learning curve to be able to take this growing user base and growing download base and figure out how to monetize it?
0: Definitely, I think one of the the best learning experiences not not just in our case but it's like learning by doing you know and with uh, crack your screen although it was accidental, we learned so many things and we learned those things really fast because things were happening that fast you know you are just getting two million downloads overnight and you don't know how to uh, what to do with those 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 numbers uh, so like we figure out how to integrate advertising little ads in the app by just the need of having them in the app because we can then monetize the app, but not, not just that. These are little things, technical things. Apart from that, we also learned how to, which is really a thing that got us where we are right now, is how you need to communicate with your users, how you need to communicate with your customers, how to think through uh, the product ties, not the technology. Because we were four, five people back then, with uh, all of us with engineering background, uh, no practical business background, no no marketing knowledge, nothing, just like hardcore programmers. That that was it. Uh, and this, this product skill that we learned, like it's really one of like the most most beneficial uh, and and a skill that got us really here today. So yeah, it's a lot of learning there.
1: Awesome. That's such a Phenomenal story, Teddy. Really just amazing. Um, So you went through this process, you built this app, you won the Samsung challenge, you got a little bit of money, and all of a sudden people started reaching out to you, looking for uh, support and building apps for them, um, which was the catalyst of of G6, your company. Um, I want to give you a little bit of an opportunity to kind of, I say loosely pitch G6, but tell me a little bit about what you guys do now. You know, maybe what makes you different. And if you feel like sharing a little bit about your approach or some of the clients or um, stories you choose to share, um, we'd love to hear a little bit more about what it is you do now.
0: Yeah. So uh, I think what, uh, when we started, the idea was that we have this crack your screen app or and, and we can keep building apps like this. But then when the, the, the popularity hit, basically when people were asking about uh, different problems that they have with mobile or web or whatever software they were building, we we saw the opportunity because now we, we have this experience, we have this huge user base uh, and we can help those people. So we saw the opportunity there uh, and uh, we started basically doing services for them, helping them, uh get to like grow their user base or figure out how they need to basically structure their app their their app in terms of like UI UX uh, and large portion of what we do today is around that area helping people uh, get on the market really fast build their like initial version their their, their MVP uh, they can get so they can get traction they can get users they can get feedback and then based on that feedback we would, uh, Help them figure out the next steps. G Six is software development slash consulting firm, but uh, sometimes the solution is not technical. Sometimes it's just pointing out to like uh, when there's feedback from the users, that that doesn't necessarily have to mean that you need to implement like some some new feature, but you need to change what you have like in your existing app, for example. Uh, and I think that's really what differentiates us from uh, companies in in in, uh, in the space, because we really know, or maybe we don't know, but we have the experience to tell whether something is good or bad judging on on users' feedback, and that's really what like that, that's really a key differentiator. Apart from that, apart from helping this, this these people kick off. And, and get out on the market as, as fast as possible. We are also, I mean, we've been working with, like, large-scale organizations also, uh, famous, like, Fortune 500 companies, basically, where uh, we would integrate uh, big big solutions. They're not, uh, not necessarily little tweaks here and there in, in contrast to, like, non-technical co-founders. So I would say right now we have, like, uh, one pillar helping startups, helping non technical co founders. The second one, you come to us with like specification, your big corporation, you have your budget in place, you have all the procedures in place, you give, you share with us these requirements, and we're able to do it. That's the second part. Uh, less exciting, definitely working with startups is like more exciting. And then the value that you're giving to those people and the learning that you can get from, from there is, is really important. We do a bunch of Innovative products here in the office, uh, trying to solve our daily, daily problems basically with our own uh, solutions. Uh, yeah, that's that's basically that's basically it.
1: Well, it's it's uh, it's interesting that you know you've got a pillar that's focusing on startups, oftentimes people that don't have technical skills that are looking for uh, those capacities. Um, then you've got your established companies that are looking for specific features or, or technical problem solving. And then you've got your own entrepreneurial initiatives in-house that you're building. Yep. So the, uh, the spirit of Crack Your Screen is still alive in G6. Oh, yeah, for sure. That's, that's the
0: part of our culture, actually, yeah.
1: That's well true. I think I think it's a good segue where I'm going to tell a little story. And I don't do this very often on the podcast because I really want to focus <laughs> at my attention on you, but I think this is a good segue for me to share a little bit how we met. Um because okay. I think it's, uh, <laughs> uh I think it it helps explain a little bit about G6 and maybe kind of segues into the next part I want to talk about which is uh working with non-technical entrepreneurs because um as you know, I was a non-technical founder myself, actually multiple times. I'm still non-technical, but uh, just incrementally and slowly learning a little bit more along the way to at least speak the language. It's such a struggle for a non-technical founder to know how to work effectively with engineers. Um, oftentimes, our expectations are skewed. Uh, we don't know what to ask for. We have unrealistic timelines, um, hmm. and we can frustrate the hell out of you guys. So, um, the little story I have to share is, I guess it was five years ago now. And I was at the university of St. Gallen helping to set up the startup lab there. And in the meantime, I was mentoring a, a ton of startups, uh, including some venture backed startups that have really grown since then. And in the process, one of the things that I learned was that, um, software development in Switzerland is expensive And that can be quite cost prohibitive for an early stage venture, especially a pre-revenue venture or even a a pre-capitalization venture. So I found myself on a random weekend uh, looking around looking around Europe for a place where I could build a network of uh, engineers and software developers and uh, wasn't sure how I was going to do that. So I went on a website. I think it was Odesk at the time, maybe before then, it yeah. became Elance and started firing out direct messages all over Eastern Europe. And in one night sitting in a, in a hotel room in the Algoy, I probably fired out about 30 emails, 30 messages on <laughs> Odesk. When I woke up the next morning, I had, I think eight or nine emails back, and these were sent out to the Ukraine and to Romania and to Macedonia and a number of other countries. And I believe six of the eight that I got back came from Macedonia, from Skopje. So I said, well, I guess this might be the place I find developers. And within 10 minutes of responding to the emails, I booked a 20-euro flight on Whiz Air to Skopje. Um, actually had to look on the map where Macedonia was. and <laughs> I, I consider myself pretty geographically sound, but um, maybe Macedonia is one of the more obscure countries in, in Europe. Oh, sorry, now North Macedonia, if I want to be politically, politically correct, at least to the Greek people that are listening. <laughs> but, uh, but I booked a flight to, to Skopje and organized a bunch of meetings and um, found myself in a cafe in the center of Skopje meeting you and. Uh, one of your co-founders and, you know, I'd met a bunch of, bunch of folks in Macedonia and really what stood out between with you guys was, you know, the first, one of the first things we talked about is your role as entrepreneurs, as well as software developers. You told me the Mm -hmm. crack your screen story. Pretty sure I almost fell out of my chair when I, when I heard that. (laughs) And, um, and yeah, five years later, here we are. And I know um, we've had a pretty great relationship in terms of, I think, um, you know, I've introduced you to some clients. You've certainly helped me with some some technical challenges. So I kind of know firsthand, um, you know, what your, your capabilities are and what, yeah. in my mind at least, differentiates you from some of the offshore companies I worked at with my startups in India and the Philippines and and some of the kind of complexities of, uh, you know, when you work with uh, companies in other countries, mm-hmm. oftentimes they're expecting requirements and uh, they're literally looking at the requirements and writing code and not thinking so much about the business itself, how customers mm-hmm. will use it, uh, the user experience, usability, but overall having that kind of entrepreneurial mind, uh, thinking of things through the lens of a business person as well as a a technical person so that's just a little story about how we got here because i think it's kind of cool but uh (laughs) cool
0: thanks for sharing that
1: want to talk about a little bit is this idea that i was just picking up on there with of developers with entrepreneurial minds um in your perspective are they rare are they really unicorns and are they hard to find and how do you as the ceo of a software company um help to kind of embed that DNA? Is it through recruitment? Is it through your corporate culture, you know? And maybe you can just talk a, a little bit about that uh, lack of entrepreneurial minds. And the reason I'm asking this is, there's so much talk about non-technical entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. right, that they're there are all these great business minds that can raise capital, that are great at strategy or marketing or, or finance or whatever it might be, that don't have technical skills. But flipping that on its head, there's also a lot of brilliant technical minds that don't have entrepreneurial skills. So maybe you could share a little bit about your thoughts and experience with that.
0: That's that's definitely, I mean, they're rare. That's for sure. Uh, Usually, as you just explained, they're like great technical talent. But then when it comes to the business side of things and a bunch of other like Thousand other things. When it comes to doing your own thing, it's basically you, you can't find people like that. It's, it's super hard, and that's been really—we uh, were fortunate enough to kind of develop that that skill over time because we weren't like that. As, as I mentioned before, we were like four or five super geek, geeky people, uh, but over over the years, we, we learned uh, one of the one of the things that's not. Uh, necessarily only in, in this case, it's not true in this case only, but it's general uh, general truth. You need to listen more than you talk. You need to be in a position to understand what the other side is saying. And with engineers, it's, it's hard to work with engineers. And that's not just my opinion. It's like opinion from millions of people that I heard before. Because as you said, they either expect to have ready to go specification they can see and code it uh, but it's also the i think the ego uh, the perception of i'm an engineer i have the power to do anything which is true to a certain extent but then that doesn't mean that you understand the business and you have to uh you have to project that on, on other aspects you know uh so learning that figuring that out that that's how the, the world works gave. Gave us really uh, strong position, strong position in the market. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely it's definitely rare. Uh, although lately, uh, there uh, there are tools that that enable people to to build stuff without that much of technical expertise. So you would see more of uh, business people, non technical people with some sort of basic skills like putting up a WordPress site, getting Google Sheet and, you know, there are a bunch of tools for that. And actually we are working on something in that space now. Uh, So you will will see more of these people, but less engineers with uh, understanding the business, unfortunately, Uh, or maybe it's good for us, I guess. So,
1: yeah. It's an interesting point that you make. um, And it's one that I talk about here at Veja quite a bit. With uh, both with founders and students and whatnot, is that, um, you know, there are a lot of tools now to be able to um, build simple apps. You know, I've kind of taught myself how to use WordPress and I've built some transactive apps on my own. And it's it's not so difficult with a a little bit of commitment and effort to do that. However, I would argue at least that, um, you know, if you say 15 years ago, that wasn't really a good option, right? Like if you wanted to Mm -hmm. build a simple e-commerce marketplace, oftentimes you were building it from scratch. Then there was the era of, you know, um, WordPress and Wix and and these types of sites that, you know, are almost kind of plug and play functionality. But Mm -hmm. as we're moving into this new era um, where, you know, some would argue simple e-commerce marketplaces are starting to get pretty saturated. I'm sure there's still some niches out there that are yet to be targeted. But um, in many ways, um, we're moving into an era of deep tech, where we've got uh, you know AI and machine learning. <coughs> the blockchain is becoming more ubiquitous, and there's all sorts of technologies that probably require more than the non-technical founders' ability to um, put something together with some really simple tools. And in my mind, that means the engineers are once again back in the in the driver's seat. Eventually, at this point, now eventually that might change again, right? As as AI develops and computers are going to be able to build their own software themselves, you know, things might might change again. What do you think about that? Do you think it is now becoming an era of deeper tech, and it's getting harder again for the non-technical folks to to build? High growth startups.
0: This is really a really huge topic and a topic that really interests me lately. And I, I think I have a lot of information to to share, but I would try to, to keep it short. Uh, AI and uh, software building itself and all these things that that's all fine. I don't think it's going to happen soon, uh, but definitely these tools will enable uh, people with like non technical background to to build stuff faster and get out on the market soon. But then we should uh, look at what, what what's the goal when someone wants to build something. Uh, they want to get traction, they want to show it to users, they want to start eventually a business, convert that into a business. Uh, and from that perspective, using all these existing tools out there, like a little WordPress site that can help you get to that, it's completely fine. I mean, all these big companies, they, like Groupon, for example, started with simple WordPress site. It worked out for them. And then when you comes when it comes to like, Growing that team, then you can build it from from scratch, or you can, you know, uh, keep building on top of what you have. Depending where what what's the uh, technology that the, this thing is built on, uh, but it's 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 an era of deep tech. Uh, but there is also place for for everyone in 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 the game right now because non technical people can build tools using what we as a technical people build. And on the other hand, there is enough opportunity for engineers to work on those tools because someone needs to maintain those tools. Although there is like, for example, a project that we're working on right now, it requires a lot of technical know-how of uh, things in terms of like infrastructure, databases, all this hardcore stuff. Uh, and we are doing all that just to make it easier for a non-technical person to build a website in, in a minute, for example. So then, you would see multiple websites being built, and multiple of them will fail. Some of them will be successful, but there will be work for the engineers because we have to keep maintaining to, to maintain basically this this infrastructure. Uh, so yeah, my 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 point is it's, it's called low code or no code uh, trend right now. Using all all these tools, uh, it will it will be like you know back in the day people were i don't know using uh, they were using uh, cards that that's that's how they programmed the computers by printed cards or then they were they would use like uh low level programming languages and now we have these modern languages but it's it's going even further with these tools so look at uh, you can look at them as uh next generation of basically programming languages we are not there are not programming languages but rather tools. And basically you're building your software. as like building blocks from pulling stuff from different, different, uh, services. Uh, but someone has to maintain that. So there's work for, for both sides.
1: Right. So like the idea of something like WordPress or, or Squarespace, it's super easy to use for the user and they can build Mm -hmm. applications off it, but there's still a role for thousands of engineers to be able to Maintain that. Improve the feature sets. Improve the reliability and functionality of it.
0: Yeah. Yep, 100%. Yeah. Hundred percent.
1: to talk to you a little bit about going a little bit deeper into this idea of non-technical entrepreneurs, Mm non-technical founders. I know you've worked with many of them, uh, me being one of them. Um, And maybe you can share a little bit about some of the the struggles or, or pitfalls of working with non-technical entrepreneurs, some of the experiences that you've had um, kind of outlining some of the challenges a little bit and maybe um, what you do to manage those those challenges in that you as an engineer, them as an entrepreneur, speaking different languages and maybe not mm-hmm. having realistic expectations of one another.
0: Yeah, speaking different language in terms of the technical language is definitely the 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 challenge. Uh, one of the biggest challenges is uh, setting up expectations, yes, for, I mean, that's that's like for everything, uh, but setting up the right expectations because no technical person would think that little feature could be like, uh, I mean, could, could be like, this is a small feature and it will take you, I don't know, two hours worth of work where the background of that feature is like more weak worth of work. Mm-hmm. And that's been really challenging to uh, to make those non-technical people understand what's really involved. And I think we did a pretty great job in explaining that, like literally taking people by hand and explaining them, this is how this thing works, uh, showing them the code, like trying to, you know, I did a lot of coding in front of those people so they can understand what's what's involved there mm-hmm. so they can know what what to expect. And that's been really a big challenge, but you need to have patience. That's really important uh, because at the end of the day, they're the ones who uh, uh, you're building this thing for them. You're solving the problem for them so they can solve it for other people. Uh, And you need to always think about the the end goal. Uh, So if the end goal is that they will produce something, it will be successful and it will bring you more work and you'll become more successful, then you need to be with them and basically do that thing that, that I did, like walking through uh, through everything and yeah, trying to trying to be as uh, valuable as valuable as possible, and in the same time maybe teaching them a little bit our side because when you work with someone, I, I'm saying that engineers are there's no profession like engineer, but it's. You're taking different heads at different times. When you do like a medical software, you need to understand a little bit of medicine. When you do like, I don't know, uh, e commerce, you need to understand how the e commerce works. Uh, but in the same time, the user on the other side, the non technical person, needs to probably understand a little bit about the technology so you can set the, the expectations. Now, again, we are talking about startups and non technical people. This is different when you work with big, uh, big companies when, uh, yeah, they they just have the specification and that's
1: it right well it's interesting what you one of the things that i picked up on that you said was that sometimes you will actually sit down with your client and code so they can see the amount of effort that it might take to do, <clears throat> excuse me to do just a what seems like a small effort for them, you can show them that it's actually a complex and time-consuming undertaking. So yep. this idea of creating transparency um, is, is obviously such a big component, but that leads me to ask Um, maybe one of the more fundamental questions about that, which is, you know, not only do you speak a different language, you have way different technical capabilities. You're tasked with executing on someone else's vision that can't do it themselves. And then on top of it, oftentimes you're on the other side of the planet from them in another country. I Mm -hmm. imagine there are some challenges, if not obstacles, to building relationships of trust?
0: Uh, I mean, we're going back to the communication, which is really essential part of everything and also in our business. And uh, the communication has been a challenge multiple times because first different expectations, but then different time zones, for example, where you are not able to respond at certain period of the day because... the guys are already out of office and something went wrong with whatever thing, although it might not be technical stuff, it might be, I don't know, uh, AWS went down, that's not our fault, but still you have the responsibility to respond. Uh, But again, if you set these things up front, and we made so many mistakes because we didn't know what could could go wrong back then. Now we don't know everything, but we know a large portion of it, so we kind of... uh, make the clients aware that this might happen and we are working until, I don't know, 9 p.m., but after that, we will respond in like that range of of time. You know, you're just making sure they know what you know so you're aligned on the expectations and that's properly communicated. That's really important because sometimes uh, you may do something for them. You may even go a step further than what's being discussed or required but if they, if you don't communicate that properly, it's like like it's not done. And if we've been in so many situations like uh, someone junior would do something; they're not communicating it, uh, it. It just creates like a like a wall that's nothing is, is going on, where in fact people are working. So the communication has been a uh, big big challenge
1: gotcha. there as well. That's that makes a lot of sense. You know, having, having good healthy dialogue is the best way to start building those relationships. Mm-hmm. And trust. I, I want to get a little bit deeper into this subject in terms, maybe of process. One of the things that you mentioned is when you work with a, um, a big established firm, oftentimes you'll get a clear documentation of requirements and you go through those requirements and you provide an output. Now, if you're working with a non-technical founder, um, most likely, they don't. They not only don't have those requirements, but they're not sure what they want yet. So, mm-hmm. I kind of want to provide a scenario a little bit. I'm a, I'm a non-technical guy, which which I am, and I've got a new business idea. I got a problem I want to solve. I've got the idea of some type of app that I want to build, um, and I know basically what I want it to do. How do I come to you? What do you do to translate this vision and just some basic objectives that I have for a technology? How do you go from what's in my head into something that I can start using on my screen?
0: What I'm trying to do, uh, and that, that's lately, and that's what, I, what I've learned, is I'm positioning myself as, uh, as a user of that thing first. And certainly the, the product experience that we were talking about before helps a lot uh, but I'm also positioning as a partner in that journey because I know that if we build something for you uh, and if that thing works out which is good for you and for us uh, we have to work on this for a really long time so I'm, I'm trying to be uh, to position myself as a partner to understand what 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 is it that you really want to do because oftentimes it's not the thing that you're saying that you want to build, but it's, uh, it's completely something else. You know, people would talk about. Uh, uh, let me let me think of this recent example. I was uh, there was one one person, so they they wanted to build an app to scan barcodes, and they can use those barcodes and the information that the barcode will give you to uh, basically. Convert some points into money, but and this is basically what this guy told me. Mm-hmm. So you don't understand anything, and I, I was like, uh, I don't, I don't get the idea. What's the idea? How you're gonna have those barcodes? You need to have them somewhere stored. You know, it's it was completely chaotic output out directly from his head, and I was trying to think through the eyes of the user. How I'm gonna use this app? What what it means? What it means? So I was of creating scenarios and taking the phone, I'm scanning the barcode, but wait, like uh, where is this information going then? How is this being evaluated? So I was. I started asking those questions to that person. And slowly we came to, to some conclusion that it's not really about the barcode, it's about some database of uh, cards that are existing somewhere with some value. And then they, they were looking for a way to convert that value into something meaningful, either cash or either using it to pay for, for other stuff. It was completely different, different setup. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm walking in like the, the user's shoes and as a founder's shoes and trying to really uh, position myself as a partner there and, and understand. And usually, and more often than not, you will come to me as, with, with some idea, and I'm challenging people to uh, write these things down and I'll, I'm gonna do user stories out of them. Like the user story, typical user story would be I as a user, as a visitor, can, I can create an account on the website and then I can look at my profile. Or I as a user can click buy and then I can get this product ready. So I'm just, I'm, I'm creating those stories but I'm challenging the, the founders on the other hand to do this exercise. And uh, what happens is they, they will come with a big list of all the ideal things that they want to have. And I'm like, immediately cutting half of, half of that, basically, because I know it's nonsense. And I'm just focusing on the really important aspects of what, what's the value proposition that you, your value proposition for your clients. Yeah, that's, right. that's how I work right now. Cool.
1: Cool. I, I mean, I think that's really interesting. The idea of defining user stories is a great way to kind of articulate what those kind of primary functionalities that are happening on the site. So you've helped kind of uh, extract these stories out of the client's head, get it down on paper or digitally, kind of prioritize those that are most important. So now you got a list of stories what happens next? Where do you go next in the process? We are not starting the work until we are on the
0: same page in terms of because those stories afterwards will be the the, the blueprint for evaluating whether we delivered, whether the expectations are met, and everything. So we have to set those those, those things up first, uh, and from there, I mean, there are multiple multiple directions. Sometimes uh, uh, it involves design that has been really a uh, uh, big piece of. Uh, what we're doing, which is trying to figure out the user experience first, build the user experience first. Because people, it's less likely they will understand the code, although I'm sitting and coding with them. But it's more likely they will understand when they see something. So seeing the design, figuring out how the layout should look like, uh, again, based on those stories. So it, it kind of comes together, the stories, the layout, and then we start building from there.
1: Okay. Yeah. Cool. cool. Um, I can imagine there are a lot of things that you wish your non-technical clients knew before coming to work with you or knew as the process was unfolding. So I just kind of want to pick your brain and get a little bit of advice for those non-technical uh, founders out there that are getting ready to launch a technology company. Maybe you could share a few of your kind of top suggestions of what these entrepreneurs should be focusing on in preparation to go work with a a, a software developer.
0: First, you need to uh, try to understand what, what you're trying to build uh, and try to minimize the Uh, the information that you're going to provide to to the developers, which translates to, if you do this exercise, if you try to minimize this this information, you're kind of optimizing all these features that you have in your head. You're optimizing that and creating, again, one little story. And when you tell that story, it will be easier to to build on top of it because it's only one, basically figuring out your value proposition. Uh, The other part is, uh, I think the trust is a really important thing. When you go and talk to someone, you want to build something. Uh, they won't stall your idea. They won't uh, they won't screw you or anything because they're also looking to to make money out of that. Mm-hmm. As much as they are going to help you, but they're running a business. In, in this case, we're running a business, so it's not in our uh, in. Uh, I mean, it's not our plan at all to, to screw someone up because if you are coming to us with a problem, you have to trust us and then we have to trust you. And that's how we build this relationship that I was talking before. And then the other thing is if uh, you want to build something although it's your idea, that's fine, but idea sucks. There's a lot more than that to, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, there's execution, there are all sorts of things. It's it's, it's different topic, but uh, you have to understand that although it's your idea, uh let us, let us give you what we, what we think about that idea, because it might be good, but then some things are not possible technically, or uh, it's not uh, doable in one week, or the point is, you don't know everything, although it's your idea. Right. So you, you have to let us be creative in that area. Maybe the button is not green, it's blue, because we said it should be blue. Because we know from experience that the blue color will get you users instead of the red color or things like that. Mm-hmm. So just try to be more like on a, on a listening side. The same thing that I'm doing when I'm talking to non-technical people. Yeah. Try to listen more.
1: This idea of mutual learning. Yeah, I, You know, you touched yeah. on something that I think is, is such a good point, and it's something mm-hmm. that I hear from um, inexperienced founders, usually first-time founders that haven't been down the road yet, which is Oh, should I, should I tell people my idea? Like especially <laughs> software developers, cause they're going to steal it. Right. My idea is so great that if I tell people <coughs> they have the technical skills, they're just going to build it themselves and then I'm going to be screwed. And you know, I don't know how many times I like roll my eyes and tell people, come on, dude. Like, I think you said it perfectly, which is your idea sucks because yeah. ideas are a dime a dozen. And, uh, you guys, as engineers, have your own ideas. You know, other entrepreneurs yep. have their own own ideas, and ideas don't mean anything without execution. And if the idea is the right one for you to build, then nobody should be able to do it better than you, anyways. And if you're committed to doing it, you already have a head start in front of everybody. <laughs> so, um, yep, that's so true. What I the one other piece I wanted to ask you about this is just getting into the nuts and bolts a little bit of, of non-technical founders. You know, wh- what mm-hmm. often happens is, you know, I can use an example here. There's a, a, a startup conference coming up uh, called the Idea Lab. It's, they have, mm-hmm. it's like one of their biggest, biggest events and they do a, a startup pitch. And usually these are early stage ideas and they do the startup pitch competition. And then the winning firm gets 10,000 bucks and I think 75,000 worth of other services and whatnot. And there's a bunch of business angels in the room or whatnot. So um, just think of, think of this scenario. You know, I'm a, I'm a young founder. I've got an idea. I'm pre-product, pre-revenue and you know, I've partnered with my guys and I've got, 30,000 euros in the bank. And I've got this idea for a really big app, um, that most likely is going to cost a lot more than that. What, what happens? I come to you, you know, I've got this big idea, but I've got a small budget. How do you manage that kind of situation?
0: This goes back to the, the, the drawing board, the user stories where if usually people don't, uh, talk about their budget. They, they have their budget in mind, so they will come to us. Uh, and it's surprising because their expectations are, or, or this can be done in one week, where, in reality, it can be done in, I don't know, three months. Uh, what I'm trying to do is talk less about the budget and figure out, really, uh, what I'm thinking is the great value for a short time, less cost. That's, that's the first step, figuring out uh, understanding what you want to build, trying to make you aware that you might be wrong, uh, and then trying to uh, give you an, basically, option to choose between, you know, you do this super fast, super cost effective, go on the market, get users, or you want to do the traditional way, but then it's pretty much on your own because it's like uh, less percentage if it, you it work out that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Well, the old lean, lean startup approach is build something yeah. and uh, get get feedback from the market as as quickly as possible. Um, For sure, yeah, yeah. I I think that's something that um, a lot of uh, young entrepreneurs struggle with is this idea of scope creep. Right? They want mm-hmm. to. They think every function is absolutely important and key to their business mm-hmm. model you know, um, which kind of comes to the topic of MVPs, right? The minimal viable product. And I think everyone in in school or that reads or learns about entrepreneurship learns about this idea of what is an MVP. Um, do, you, do you oftentimes get in that kind of conversation with your clients saying, all right, all of these requirements are, uh, there's this long list of user stories and, you know, What's the MVP here? What do you want to build first, and how do you pare that down?
0: That's exactly what we do: defining the MVP uh, and basically the, the getting one value proposition, creating that one value proposition. But what happens oftentimes is that uh, people, people, mis- uh, people are making mistakes when they think about MVP. MVP is not the first version of your software because usually they will come with list of Things or we will work together on a list of things. So in the end, we will end up having bigger list which has four different value props. Where that's the first version of your solution. It's not an MVP. MVP is getting only one thing and getting it out in two weeks and getting feedback there. And that's that's also again another another challenge. Trying to to make people understand that it's, we are not locking ourselves for three months and building your first version because. Maybe you don't have the budget, you don't have the understanding, or it just, it just not how it works. So trust us a bit.
1: Interesting. Yeah. You know, I want to ask one more question. I've asked this to a lot of the other founders that have been on this podcast, which is the idea of founder teams. Um, you know, I do a lot of work with accelerator programs and oftentimes, uh, actually we were at Techstars earlier in the year and, uh, David Brown, one of the founders, said his first three criteria in judging a business are team, team, and team. <laughs> and you know, again, here we are at a, a university that doesn't have a lot of technical skill sets. You've worked with a lot of founder teams that don't have technical skill sets. On a on a personal level, maybe not the. Uh, the g6 mission but what do you think about founder teams do you think we're at a time that founder teams can get away with not having a technical co-founder or do you find um the, the companies that do have a really big advantage of the one over the ones that don't
0: companies definitely have bigger advantage when they have technical Person on board, and that's been proven through multiple examples in the work we do. We've been working with companies with zero technical people, even in later stages, and it's it's getting harder and harder once they once they grow, once there are different challenges. It's not building the MVP; it's scaling the, your business. Then they they see the challenge. But versus on the other hand, we had companies they have at least one person who understands or it's maybe more involved in that. And these companies are massively successful and way more ahead than, than the others. So definitely having someone is really important. I mean, at the beginning, you can build your MVP. You can uh, go out with like the tools that we talked about, like build a WordPress site. Go out there, uh, figure out if there's product market fit. And, and once you are certain about that, you can have someone technical. But the earlier this technical person is part, of the team is better, definitely, because then they have the sense of ownership and they understand the business, they may suggest something else. So it's, I think it's definitely important.
1: Yeah, I kind of get the same sense. I'm just, I'm wondering if there's, a, you know, a, if that there's plan A and plan C, that maybe there's a plan B in there as well, which would be, could, how do you think about startup teams that maybe don't have an engineer on their team? They're often hard to find in a lot of cases, but someone that has knowledge of product management, do you notice that if there's someone that has the ability to kind of manage a product development process, which is definitely more common in a business school than finding an engineer, do you find that having someone managing the the project, or at least translating the business requirements into semi technical user stories, does that make things easier in terms of the communication and trust? To a certain point, yes, because
0: yeah, it's, this person could speak the language, it, it will be easier, someone will do this job, but it's not helping on the long run because uh, what's gonna happen is this person will become overwhelmed with eventually becoming like CPO or something, like taking care of the product in the future. And then the know-how will be left to whatever engineering team you have somewhere else. You know, that's some parts of the work can be done somewhere else, but you need to have this person inside who will deeply understand the, the core core business. So you yeah. can maybe change teams in the future, scale faster. At the beginning, it might be helpful, but not on the long run. And then the analogies: you're working on like a medical product, but you have no medical person there. Mm. Yeah. You might heard of uh, I don't know medical devices. You might use one, but you're not medical person, so you can't really build something in that industry. At right. some point, you will have to engage this person. There are famous examples of people starting airline, airline companies like, I don't know, Richard Branson or Jess Hitzler. Uh, in their case, they were non-technical, in technical meaning not having any clue about a, the, the airspace mm-hmm. industry. But uh, my assumption is that uh, today, these companies are big. Actually, the, the, the other one got acquired. But uh, at some point, they they needed to hire these these technical people, mm-hmm. and with engineering and with what we do right now, it's uh, it's super important, and you need to have this person as early as possible. So right,
1: right, yeah, that idea of uh, of domain expertise obviously it can be really mm-hmm. valuable, and that that goes for the non technical folks too. Like like you yeah. said, I it that led me to to want to ask one one other question, which is. Um, using g6 as an example now since you guys Mm -hmm. kind of specialize in helping you know these non-technical entrepreneurs build their mvps and early iterations of their products i assume many of them are um, building them to get proof of concept maybe to get to their next stage of capitalization and Mm -hmm. growth uh, with the intent to eventually bring uh, development and engineering in-house can you talk a little mm-hmm. bit about um, if what kind of challenges or how you maybe mitigate those challenges in transitioning from being a service an external service provider to those companies taking the technology in house? Um, are there some uh, difficulties with that, or ways that you manage that process?
0: In our experience, and all of our clients, we we weren't really in a position to transition what we did to internal team because people usually they, they stay with us either their business dies for some other reasons or if they keep growing they're there with us uh, so i i can't really talk how this transition might go but i can talk on the other side how we inherited some pieces of work from other development teams uh, and that's again a uh, challenge challenge for itself because then you have different uh, technology stacks, different understanding. You need to basically uh, spend some time learning about the business, which is not a little kid now. It's a grown-up man, and you need to, uh, you know, it has certain requirements, certain rules. Uh, we're trying to make this transition as smooth as possible. Uh, sometimes it's, it, it works. Mm. Oftentimes there, there are various challenges here and there, Uh, But it can be done. But my point is that people don't do that anymore because how it works today is you have different, uh, different teams in different places. So maybe your core business is one team and you have, again, assuming that you have one technical person can coordinate the work. Then you have some other team in charge of some other product and it's getting more flexible. It's like embracing remote work and, and and all these popular things today. But that, that's how it works. It's not like, because if you hire someone on board, then the cost increases depending where, where you are in the world. But working with US clients, it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it might be three, five X depending on the expertise. So people don't do that.
1: Gotcha, cool. Well, I could, Dig in deeper because of my own um, PTSD from building, building apps <laughs> and building technology in the past. But um, just to be cognizant of your time, um, I know it's the end of your day. Um, I want to pose a couple questions that I ask all of the people that are on the podcast, um, just to dig a little bit more into Teddy the human being rather than Teddy, the entrepreneur. So um, first question I want to ask you is what book are you reading right now? What's on your bedside table?
0: Uh, well, right now I'm not really reading anything, but the latest one that I read and it's literally sitting next to my bed table. And I read it for like, I guess, third time now. It's Hard Things About Hard Things, Ben Horowitz. Nice. Yeah. That's one of like my favorite books. There's so much learning in there. And I intend to read that
1: again. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost biblical in the way that you're reading it, man. Um, Yeah. The other question I want to ask you, um, what's on your playlist? What are you listening to? I can open up Spotify and see what's in there.
0: (laughs) Uh, Where where I see that. Okay, like songs. So the first one is 50s Japan, Jesse James. That's (laughs) the name of the song. It's a pretty good instrumental piece. Nice, but yeah. Other than that, I'm a I'm a hip hop guy.
1: You're a hip hop guy. Hip
0: hop. Yeah. And when I work a little bit of jazz slash classical music sometimes.
1: <laughs> I think I recall when uh, one of the times <laughs> where you came to Colorado, you you found yourself at uh, at Red Rocks. At a was it a Snoop Dogg show? Snoop yep. Dogg, <laughs> <real>, yeah. <laughs> that's that's a good good American experience right there. Good Colorado yeah. experience too, but. <laughs> Man, Teddy Pejoski, my friend, dude. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time and kind of sharing your story and um, providing our audience a little insights on on what it's like to to build software. And particularly as uh, as non technical folks, I think it was really illuminating, and it'll spark a lot of thinking around uh, with it among our audience. So, thank you so much. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Thanks, thanks for having me, Garrett. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. Uh, and you reminded me actually of some, some like older memories that I haven't really <laughs> talked about. Uh, but yeah, it's been, it's been, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: We'll have to do that next time. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Well, folks, that was Teddy Pioski, founder of G6, Codepreneurs, Enzyme, and much more. To learn more about Teddy's work, go to g6.me. That's G-S-I-X dot or find him on Twitter at at underscore Teddy. Next up, we'll be kicking off season three of the most awesome founder podcast with some really fun changes. We'll be highlighting some hot topics in the world of tech, introducing some of the most inspiring female founders we know, and sharing stories of some of Germany's coolest non-tech startups. We'd also like to welcome our new producer and editor, Mr. Paul Apple. So be sure to check out our website, mostawesomepodcast.com, follow our channel on YouTube, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast streaming service. We'll see you in a few weeks. This next is Mal.